Hey everybody, I'm Tyler, and this is the Early Days Podcast. I created this show as part of my work as an investor at Antler. I wanted to talk to the world's best founders and pick their brains on how they went from zero to one, building some of the most important companies in the world. Okay, hey Mari. Hey Tyler. How are you? doing fantastic so mana you are one of our portfolio companies you are the founder ceo of PowerX. i don't know if you know this you specifically and PowerX is the first investment i ever made ever so i worked at antler you know i started antler in singapore in 2018 i was on the investment committee in singapore but i don't i don't really take credit like those weren't my investments those were uc's investments and i moved in 2019 and we had NYC one batch and you were the first deal that we made um, because uh, you, you called me and said, Hey, Tyler, I really want you in, but you have to tell me right now. if you could do it." <laughs> so you are the first ever investment that I've made, not just an antler, but like as a, as an investor, did you know that? Yeah. Um, I didn't know it makes me both happy and proud. <laughs> yeah. And I'm excited. Uh, you know, I always tell people like, I think PowerX can be very successful, but uh, yeah, would love an intro, uh, like elevator pitch PowerX for people who are listening. What is PowerX? You know, why did you start it? Like, where are we at? Yeah, PowerX builds hardware-enabled AI sensors that reduce energy waste. That is PowerX in a nutshell. Um, what what we are doing is that we focus on heavy energy waste industries, for example, hotels, for example, restaurants, and then we reduce both their utility bill and that on quite a substantial amount and their energy and there is also their, their CO2 output. Um, just to put this into perspective on, on how much we can actually save both like for the wallet and the environment, um, the average restaurant saves saves 10 to 25% with us. And when you have a utility bill of $100,000 per year, yeah. which is not unheard of for a restaurant, or even a multiple of this if you are a hotel, then you can save ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a year, um, which, is, which is really substantial for such a small margin. You yeah, know, industry sure. as a as a restaurant. Yeah, and where you're at. So you just finished raising your seed round. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? For sure, we had a pre-seed and a seed round. Yeah. The seed round we did both with Antlers Elite, which I'm again very happy and and proud of. Hip -hip. And um, <laughs> and. Um, then a number of other investors, uh, really nearly a nearly a dozen of names. I'm I'm very happy to have um, on our cap table. Yeah, it was a process of several weeks, which is normal. It brought in. Uh, we had a goal of four million. We actually overshot this goal by quite a bit. <laughs> uh, which which we are also very happy given the current funding environment it's not the, it's not the, the greatest environment at the moment to raise money yeah 
And um, it just completely, you know, it enabled us to now grow the business we built over the past couple of months and years. Um, and it also, it also takes a bit of, of, of pressure out, which is fantastic. Yeah, for sure. So I want to come back to the fundraising piece because I think what you did was pretty phenomenal. And I think there's a lot of really amazing learnings for founders who are, you know, thinking about raising a seed or just aspiring founders about kind of the reality of fundraising, which I think is great to hear from people who just come off the battlefield like you, as opposed to like, you know, the Twitter feed or the uh, TechCrunch feed, I think is a really poor representation of what it actually is like. Yeah. Um, but I want to loop back and start really, and we've actually done this before. So I, as long with being the first investment, I think you were the first podcast I ever recorded uh, when we did it in my studio apartment when we were both living in Brooklyn. Uh, and I still have that I episode. I remember. Still have that episode, by the way. It's <laughs> saved on my computer. Um, and I think it's three and a half hours long. <laughs> and so I've heard like an incredibly inspiring and detailed story about your background. I think for this podcast, three and a half hours um, is probably a little bit long. And I really want the focus here to be on, you know, PowerX, but I think it's really valuable just to hear sort of the condensed version of your story, you know, growing up uh, sort of humbly in Germany and then your travels and then your health condition and your recovery from that health condition and then your sort of career and what brought you to being an entrepreneur. Can you give us the rundown there? So I think it's like, For sure. honestly, I think your life could be a movie. Um, so can you give us the trailer? For sure. In, in a good and a bad way. Um, <laughs> you probably would have never guessed given my accent, but I, I was born and raised in, in Germany in a yeah. very small town of a thousand people and as many cows. It's like a and, Swabian um, village, right? That is a Swabian village. And for whoever doesn't know what Swabian means, Germany ha has this quote unquote old tribes and the Swabians is one of one of the tribes in Southern Germany. So uh, in, in my late uh, teenager years, I uh, then went to China, actually by train, which is from Germany or, or in this case from St. Petersburg over Moscow to China. That's quite a trip. Uh, lived in China for a bit over a year, primarily as a teacher for autistic children. And there I caught a, a disease uh, called encephalitis, meningitis which uh, is, is, a, is a disease that affects the brain. Yeah, when I came, came back... the brain fluid, right? That's correct. That's super, correct. And like super deadly, right? Like it's kind of a miracle that you're here. Um, it's, I would say the chances for the specific time I had, the chances are, more, it's more likely that you survive, but it's about, you know, it's, it's a high percentage that actually doesn't. It's quite a high percentage that actually has neuronal damage. Um, now, I, I can't say. Maybe I have. I have to ask my wife on that. But um, And then there's you, a, a, about a third. JE, right? Japanese encephalitis? That is the, the most likely diagnosis. Okay. So my, my samples were actually sent around. You get a little needle in the spine, mm -hmm. and then they take out the fluid from your spine, and then they send it around to descend around to different labs in, in Germany. Yeah. They could never finally pinpoint 
what it was, but the most likely is Japanese mm. encephalitis, uh, which which you get from mosquito bites in Japan, uh, primarily in Japan. And usually it's about one-third survival rate, one-third neuronal, neuron, neuronal damage in in certain form, and then one-third that, um, that doesn't survive. <laughs> Those are pretty bad odds. <laughs> Those are pretty bad odds. Uh, I honestly, in the hospital, I was uh, uh, my very happy self because compared to China, which was pretty rough, you know, I, yeah. I didn't earn too much and it was pretty hard, harsh living. Compared to and China, they was, served me free food. Uh, yeah. Sorry, what year did you arrive in China? That was 2005. Okay, so yeah, yeah. I mean, even just to contextualize that, like, from then until now, China has changed dramatically. Like the dramatically. the modern like bund in the Shanghai skyscrapers, everyone has mobile phone internet access. That was not where you arrived. Like China was still very much pulling itself out of poverty. Absolutely. Maybe one very quick and funny anecdote in yeah. the, the, the village I lived in, which was very close to Beijing. They built a huge highway, eight lanes, and the farmers didn't use it to actually, you know, drive into Beijing in the first year or so. They used it to to dry their corn. <laughs> so you could not drive on the highway because the entire highway was full of like corn that they that they dried there. So like you could really see you could You're really like, see Man, the government is doing great. They built this huge corn drying <laughs> station for us. <laughs> <laughs> so much better than what we had before. No bugs. Yeah, that that was pretty amazing. cool. It's like, how did China pull itself out of poverty? It was like, well, first they had to feed. I mean, because, yeah, 2005, they were on the tail end of just like uh, figuring out how to feed the whole country. That was like, objective, yeah. you know, after the Cultural Revolution sort of wound down, it was like, we don't. That, have you listened to The Prince? Shout out to Caroline, who recommended it to me. Um, the economist made a podcast called the prince and yeah. it is about the rise of she and it's f it's really good i would highly recommend listening to it amazing um, there's yeah. a whole episode so she was uh he did many things in his career at one point he was like a ministry uh, advisor and uh he was in charge of figuring out how to feed the country and so she actually came and spent like six months in Iowa in the United States with like these farming families learning how wow. the United States agricultural system worked. And it's really funny because these families are still alive and they interviewed them. And it's like this farming woman <laughs> from Iowa. And she's like, yeah, we love she. We had the best time when he was here. He still <laughs> texts us and sends us Christmas cards. And it's like, it's so funny because the, uh, the, like characterization of C is like this like autocratic leader of the modern China. But then it's like, there's these families that he like slept in bunk beds at their house. <laughs> in Iowa. Um, Maybe found your, yeah, found exactly. your pajama. Can you send it to exactly. uh, That was like, that is once, amazing. I didn't know one, one yeah. of his returns and rises within CCP was figuring out how to feed the country, which is like still very much a problem. That was like the main thing China had to figure out how to do in yeah. uh, the early two thousands. So 1.3 billion people that's a lot. It's a lot of to people feed. to feed. Yeah. yeah. And like um I think people uh, uh, like 
I don't know what the perspective is from Europeans. I guess like the EU helps, can, you know, the countries that can grow food share, but I think Americans have a very distorted view of like how critical and fragile food systems are because yes. we just live on this like massive continent. And yes, fortunately the majority of landmass in the United States falls within temperate agricultural zones, which is like not yes. true as you go yes. up and down. And so it's yeah. like, I don't think Americans have a perspective on the fragility of food systems where in China, it's like, not only do you have a massive population, but you have smaller geographic area. And within that yep. geographic area, you have significantly less land that falls into agricultural zones, right? Yep. You have like a huge marine ecosystem, which is not great for growing, you know, wheat, corn, et cetera. And then on the West side, it's essentially uh, tundra. I mean, you have high desert. Yep. You can't grow food yep. out in towards Mongolia. Yep. Um, but anyways, this podcast is not about the agricultural ecosystem of China. So you were in china you can't so you got sick uh you came back to germany and go from there um i actually spent several weeks um uh in the ER, um in the hospital and the, the diagnosis back then was like you know you will not die great uh <laughs> I, I like that but you will you know probably always have some neuronal defects going forward yeah. And um, the first year, actually, it I, I it, it was hard. So I do remember, you know, uh, having sometimes even trouble speaking. So it was not the easiest. But after a year, like the the defects actually pretty much were all gone. And by now, I would say I'm I'm you know back to my normal self, which I'm very thankful about. Uh, I did study then then business and very luckily got. A, uh, a scholarship for both Wharton uh, and then also uh, Harvard University and finished my master's in the U.S., for which I'm very grateful because that's where I got to know my wife. So yeah. uh, At Harvard or Wharton or just the U.S.? Har Harvard, Harvard, yeah. All right. So, uh, wow, your kids yeah, must be proud, uh, two Harvard parents. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, probably two percent bright, ninety eight percent like get out of my hair, like stop being that performance driven and weird. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, right. So, it's gonna backfire on you. You're gonna have like hippie yeah. kids who like don't want to go to college because you're you guys both went to Harvard. <laughs> it's it's funny because I have like I I really wouldn't mind. Maybe say this now, you know, and then I change. But I really wouldn't mind. If my if my daughter wants to be an artist or does something else, I think living a living a, a life well lived can be many many things. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's like a rise. I actually get a lot of this from you, and it may be like your Swabian roots, but um, like, do you know like like the term Bohemian? Yes. Yeah. Like, so I get a lot of a lot of Bohemian. I mean, as we're talking, like this will be a podcast, but you have like the Moroccan tea lamps hanging behind you. And one thing I've always uh, admired so much in you is your ability to be so intellectual and your ability to have such work ethic, but to balance it with this like sort of laid back bohemian. Um, like I remember they wrote after we invested in you during COVID, there was like a whole article they wrote about like guy who's building a tech company from a van. And I was like, I didn't know Manu's living in a van. <laughs> I was like, 
Mata's just been driving a van around the country for the past, you know, four months. And part of it, like, I didn't know you were living in a van was less like, oh. And it was more like I had not seen any difference in the speed at which you were moving with Power Act <laughs> because you were living in a van. So it's like this amazing balance. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so you guys met at Harvard. And then did you go straight into McKinsey? I had um, I did work for the World Bank yeah, okay, for sorry. a couple of months uh, as a consultant, um, and then I I changed and worked for McKinsey. I did work for McKinsey about about two and a half years in like I was officially based in Germany in Qatar in the Middle East, but did projects all over the place, including a mine at four thousand meters in in Chile at the, the border between Chile and Argentina what and also in Papua New Guinea. What do you mine at 4,000 meters? Copper. Uh, that was a copper mine. In Papua New Guinea, it was gold, surprisingly, yeah. or, or not surprisingly. And uh, right after McKinsey, then I, I, I built PowerX and that's actually absolutely right when COVID hit. I had to leave, <laughs> I had to leave the US on one of the last flights going out and i was like great now i'm in a different country i have to continue building this company that is in the u.s while i'm in in germany uh you know i i get a truck i put a hole in the roof i build a huge antenna for lte on uh i get a huge antenna for lte and then i just make this my official office and drive around europe yeah if Elon Musk or anyone from Starlink is listening, you guys should sponsor Manu <laughs> as an ambassador. <laughs> Manu existed. straps Starlinks on top of it. <laughs> um, Completely apparently. illegal yeah, build up, and yeah. Just like, you know, getting, uh, you know, a gig download speeds while driving 75 miles down the highway. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so abbreviated version, um, I will at one point create a special episode of the recording that we have because, uh, you know, we did a three and a half hour version of that. And it is, um, to me, it is such a good example. That was the first, it, it's such a good example of listening to you tell the story there in the abbreviated version. It so powerfully illustrates to me the power of listening and like asking deeper questions, like there's so much more detail and there's so much more emotion and just impact on you as a human to that story. And, you know, in the abbreviated version, a lot of that doesn't come through. Um, but we'll make a special episode and I'll post that uh, at some point. Maybe when you like IPO, it'll be like a way for us <laughs> to look back, and, you know, sitting, it was like right before COVID hit in my 600 square foot flat in Brooklyn with our two dogs. Um, <laughs> So now let's talk about PowerX. So you and I first met through Torre, right? Mm. I think he introduced yeah. us. So we were recruiting yeah. for the very first uh, NYC antler batch, um, which, you know, you got to experience. It was basically me and Ryan uh, making it up as we go. <laughs> and Thank you first, like it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think the first time we talked on the phone, you were like kicking a soccer ball around in your backyard and we were you know, <laughs> chatting about right. your background and 
the work you had done at McKinsey and how you were super interested in the hydrogen economy and hydrogen production. Um, yep. And I mean, per our thesis, I was like, I don't know anything about the hydrogen economy or hydrogen production, but like Mana seems like a super smart, accomplished, aspirational kind of out of the box guy. Like we should definitely have him in the program. And yeah, I think we spent many whiteboarding sessions talking about hydrogen production. And so I'll lead you in here because the moment, to me, the moment that PowerX was discovered was we were like white, we were talking to me about all these stats about peak energy shaving and hydrogen production and how if you could peak load shave and produce hydrogen, you could finally make the hydrogen production economy stable and this and that. And I was like mm -hmm. drowning in trying to keep up with you and this and that. And then like uh, on a break, you were like, oh, sorry, I just had to respond to an email. One of the uh, devices I installed in a friend's house in Germany wasn't working and I had to help them fix it. And I was like, what do you mean? And you're like, oh, I like built these devices that you connect to. You know, most people in Germany have radiators to heat the house, so, which is water-based. And you're like, yeah, I just like built this device and you clip it to your water pipe and it like helps your radiator run more efficiently. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like how many do you build? And you're like, oh, I've sold like 500. It was like some crazy, like, <laughs> I've sold like a thousand of them. And like some of the biggest utility companies in Europe are like banging on my door trying to buy this thing. And I was like, wait, Manu, why the fuck are we talking about hydrogen production? Like, <laughs> let's build this business. Uh, and to me, that was like when PowerX started. Um, yeah. So like, I would love to kind of hear the story from your perspective because you had been doing this in the background um and yep. you did a bunch of other things to it. you built a hydrogen powered scooter in your spare yep. time that you brought into the cohort and we rode around in new labs building <laughs> but like from that period like kind of walk me through your perspective on that inception of power x because it to me kind of happened serendipitous sort of accidental that we were like wait a minute that should be the business yep that is that is correct, and I honestly credit you with that discovery quite a bit. Oh, I appreciate that. I, I, I think I, I, I would credit it to me not wanting to talk about hydrogen production anymore, but it worked out. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, eventually, this guy's gonna realize that I don't know what the fuck he's talking about if we keep talking about hydrogen production. You, you seem. <laughs> Super genuinely interested. I was like, oh, great. Finally, somebody whose ear doesn't bleed. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it, it happens quite often, actually, that you, you find or invent a, a good product as a byproduct of what you have done. Or in yeah. our case, it's like, say, hey, this is a thing I'm working on. It's like Slack, right? It's like exactly Slack or yeah. e even, even Shopify, where he was actually like the, the the founder was actually selling i think was it um there was something weird i heard it the other day toby when he started it was not he was like i yeah, need to build yeah. e-commerce infrastructure to do my exactly like, instagram was like location based and they were like you know people aren't going to go to restaurants unless the pictures look really nice so they like made the exactly. picture they made the picture filters and everything so yeah it's like very common Exactly. Like he, yeah. he, he was selling snowboards in Canada and oh, it, yeah, it, right. he wasn't, he wasn't doing well. And yeah, by accident he built, 
<laughs> how did that happen? He built <laughs> Shopify quote unquote by accident and, and realized it's actually doing way better than my snowboards. And that yeah. is not too uncommon. Plus, what's really helpful is you learn a lot just getting your feet your feet wet in business being a founder and then finding product market yeah, fit sure. in one yeah. way or another. And yeah. so I credit you a lot with this discovery. I, I indeed, you know, from my more strategic uh, work we did at McKinsey, I was much more thinking about a time frame of 10 years, hydrogen economy is going to come. There are many benefits around hydrogen and uh, the energy density yeah. it provides. I really had did not have too much experience um, or even, you know, the the street smartness of what a, a founder and and a startup CEO needs in terms of what can you sell right now and what can you make happen right now and how can you actually sell the story to people that then support you. And yeah. I think y- y- you have that street smartness uh, in, yeah, in you I, and you are. I didn't, go to Har- so. I didn't go to Harvard, Mano. I had to. I had to survive. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why I was very wrong for focusing on, on the hydrogen part. Uh, so you I mean, said, hey, some you of the sh- best graphs I've ever seen to date are your hydrogen economy graphs. <laughs> I mean, you should do a TED talk about the hydrogen economy <laughs> as, a, as a side hobby. It's it's still uh, it's still everybody still you know says this is amazing. This will come in ten years, and now we are like you know five years in. Yeah. Um. So you you basically said, hey, you have this is a this is a great thing. You have to focus on it. And I I thought, well, Tyler is right. Like we should do that. Um. It it was quite. A challenge because not only I I did hardware, you know, in my little kitchen lab in in Germany, um, yeah. being a both a, a bad coder and a, a bad hardware engineer. I'm not even yeah. an engineer by, by by background, so like I am honestly just a hobbyist that kind of builds prototypes. But it did work, and we actually had a utility company reaching out to us and saying, "Hey, we would be interested in that," and we, <laughs> yeah. we piloted with them. So I was like, "Oh, built this! Like, do it now! This is great!" And we 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 pitched to you pitched to Andler and got support, which which I'm eternally grateful for. Uh, then pretty pretty soon after COVID hit, and with COVID, we uh, a number of crises and unfortunately were, were piggybacked on COVID. The, the most substantial ones for us were the component crisis, the shipping crisis, and as a result, our main manufacturing company, our main chip supplier going down. Yeah. So all that happened all that happened within a couple of weeks and months. So we just build our product from prototype to something that is like, you know, mass manufacturable, and that's a very big step. Yeah, for sure. A Harvard prototype versus a mass manufacturable you know, if we knew like what we were getting into, we wouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, this is like part of why naivete is a really powerful weapon for founders. Like, if you knew what you were trying to do, you would have never tried to do it. It was insane, Not especially it. during COVID. I remember there was a whole year basically where every month when we would catch up, I'd be sitting at my mom's kitchen table and we would just look at Gantt charts of where all of your shit is stuck all over the world. It's like, well, we've got. Well, $150,000 sitting in a port in uh, China. We've got $200,000 sitting off the coast of LA. Like it was like, yeah, it was like, uh, it was a year of like, 
Uh, I'm not kidding. I still have like PTSD thinking about Mm -hmm. this year. Like it, it was rough because you feel so out of control. You can't even fly there. I I couldn't even leave Germany, you know, because COVID was there. There were no flights. Yeah. You were stuck in Germany too. Um, You have to, on the one hand, handle the U S and handle a company building it in a market. You cannot enter because there are, virtually no flights to go there and your visa has been canceled due to administration <laughs> on the other hand you cannot fly to the other side of the world china where you produce your your um where you mass produce your your hardware because yeah. there are no flights and if you come you're staying in quarantine for like you know four weeks or whatever yeah. which is impossible as a ceo so you're kind of trapped between those two worlds and you know ni- neither the the physical infrastructure supports you so there are, there are no planes leaving physically nor the legal infrastructure supports you that was a really rough time because um because you you need to keep working and you need to keep performing both on a professional level but also on a psychological level this is a lot of stress like it's it's not like how how do you keep your employees excited and and putting yeah. in the extra effort how do you how do you tell your investors i am very sorry our chip manufacturer went down they are virtually out of business we have to redesign this piece with a different chip i'm really sorry the container cost went up from two thousand dollars per container to twenty thousand dollars per container 10x <laughs> yeah. i I have to tell you that little piece that we build into our hardware in a yeah. six-day runtime, we bought yeah. two thousand. We need twenty thousand of this. Unfortunately, the six days are now sixty-three weeks yeah. in terms of in yeah, terms of time insane. we need for this to be to be delivered. So it was an absolutely insane, insane year. Yeah. I, so and I mean, COVID was obviously like a extraneous circumstance for everyone but you mentioned something so sam from bitewell i don't know if you ever mm-hmm. met sam um uh, she was on yesterday we recorded yesterday and <coughs> um they have their own version of this story which is like there was just periods where it was like we don't know what's going on we just have to keep trudging forward and and and, and you said the the psychological load and what sam and i talked about is like it is psychological. Like I personally think the better way to explain it is like, it's the emotional workload. Like no one explains yeah. how emotionally difficult yes. it is yeah. to get a startup off the ground when yeah. like nothing is going right. It doesn't yeah. feel like you're making any progress. You're getting yeah. essentially zero, if not negative reinforcement externally yeah. on what yeah. you're doing. Like no, like it's, it's tough. Like you're all yeah. alone and yeah especially as the CEO or the founder, if you have a team, like you can't really share that burden with them. Like you got to show up and be like, Hey, everything's going to be fine. Like you, you, you actually part of the job is you have to carry the load alone. You have to shield the team from, uh, the abyss. Yes. Um, yeah. Like how, how, how do you feel like you've grown and developed just as a, as a leader and as a, as a founder having gone through that? I think the way you put it is one of the best descriptions I've I've heard. Because on the one hand, exactly as you say, 
you're under fire on a number of dimensions emotionally. Yeah. On the other hand, you can actually not show it because you have to shield your team from the abyss. You yeah, exactly. have to keep the optimism. And that split is really difficult to to hold and accommodate in yeah. your head. Yeah. You you have to yeah, tell it, some, it goes against it goes against yeah. a lot of natural inclinations you have, which is like yes. sometimes it feels like you're lying to people. You're like Yes. Like what I'm seeing is everything is fucked. Yes. And I have to show up and be like, hey guys, like it, everything's fine. We just need to keep moving forward. And there's this element of like making your own destiny, which is like as yeah. long as you can continue to take steps forward. Yes. That that's really the only determination of whether it will work out or not, is you just yes. keep walking forward. Um, I, I think I think grit and just keep on walking forward is probably the number one determinant of whether you will be successful sooner or later. For for mm. sure, you know, if you're in like in the absolutely wrong market and if everything just turns sideways, even if you are the best CEO, I believe there are, you know, things can happen and you can just not salvage, you can just not save the situation. Um, not, not going back to Elon Musk here, but we don't know what will happen to Twitter. Right now, they're in the fire in a number of ways and Facebook said, hey there, we will... We will use your weakness. So maybe yeah. even an, an accomplished CEO like Elon Musk is not able to save that, 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 that situation to save Twitter. But all that being said, like going forward and continuing and not giving up is probably the number one, mm -hmm. the number one thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like over the course of our relationship, which I think we're going on, you know, four years of, of knowing each other now, there's been a few... Uh, very memorable for me moments where I was like, damn, Manu is like, he's got it. Like he's going to be tremendously successful as a founder, but getting through that period to me was like a real seminal moment for me that like Manu has it and PowerX is going to be successful because like there was a million different reasons why you could have quit during that period and probably more so than more so than the reasons, right? Like nobody would have really blamed you. Like if you were like, Hey guys, look like the whole supply chain is just absolutely destroyed. All of our money is tied up in things that I don't think are going to get here. I just don't see any way out of this. Like, I think we wrap up and we move on and I go to the next thing. I like people would have been a little bit disappointed, but like no one would have been mad. It would have been totally acceptable to be like, yeah, fine. I mean, we took a shot at it, but like it just didn't work. And as I continue to learn and develop and grow as an investor, I become more and more confident that really the only thing that separates really great entrepreneurs and okay entrepreneurs is their capacity to just keep moving forward when no one would be mad if you quit right now. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that really is the difference because what you can't control in a startup is how long it takes for those periods where it feels like everything's going wrong to pass, you know, sometimes they're short lived. Sometimes they're very long. Like I was telling Sam the buds. Now I'm going to, I'm going to tell this story now in every interview. So if the listeners <laughs> are going to listen to me to say the same thing over and over again, but in uh, seal team 
training in buds in the qualification class, right? The whole point yeah. of buds is just to get like a ton of people to drop out. It's like yeah. 5% make it at the end. And the single setup that gets the most people to drop out in a single event is run one mile down the beach, run one mile back. That's it. But you run until I tell you to stop. I'm not going to tell you how long you have to go. And it's not physically difficult, right? Out of all the physical things you do during buds, it's like running two miles down and back. is really not that demanding. I mean, these guys are in amazing shape. What's demanding is every step you take, your brain is trying to tell you a story of like, I don't know how long this is going to go. I yeah. can't break this up into manageable yeah. bites. The emotional yeah. load of not knowing, am yeah. I going to be here for an hour more or 10 hours yeah. more? It just breaks people. And yeah. I think it is that exact psychological burden or emotional burden that founders have is the only thing you can't control is how long it's going to take to get through this period. And that's really tough. You know, when you work in a job or a controlled environment, you know, say you're a investment banker or let, let's do uh, I have a friend who's a tax accountant. He knows when his life is going to suck, right? <laughs> April, halfway into like it's like leading up to april the first yeah. all q1 is gonna suck he's just got it marked on his calendar is like this quarter sucks but he knows april 14th it's all over it'll end so yeah. I, it's like every day i wake up and i'm like i just got to go a little bit further i got to go a little further i know this yeah. is going to come to an end yeah and what's hard about a startup is you don't know like you don't yeah. know when your supply chain problems are going to come to an end if they ever yeah. and the, the reality is they will yeah. But you just have to keep walking. You just keep having yeah. run a mile down and a mile back. Yeah. And yeah. I genuinely believe what separates great founders from everybody else is not that they're smarter. It's not that they're, they've got a better idea or this and that. It's their capacity to do that and not lose enthusiasm. And the fact that you're still here and you raise your seed round, PowerX has never been in a better position, but also that you're still enthusiastic and excited about the company to me is the best. And if someone were like, why would you invest more money in PowerX? It's like, cause Manu's still here and enthusiastic and excited about the business. And I probably more than anyone on your cap table know what you've gone through. And like, you have a lot of reasons to not be enthusiastic about the business. You have a lot of scar tissue, but you still are. And to me, it's like, I don't, whatever, financial modeling, all this shit, whatever, don't care. That's why I would put more money into this business because that's the hardest thing to find in the startup world. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment that this is probably the most important. You can have, you know, lucky, lucky shots. Yeah, for like sure. you find product market bid, product market fit within, within a couple yeah, of weeks. Can, and yeah, it can work in your favor where it's like, exactly. hey, this, this thing just fell right in your lap. And yes. It's great. And it becomes part yeah. of the story of like, yeah, this one thing that changed the course of the company happened in our favor. Yeah. It doesn't always work against you. Yeah. Um, but the fact that you don't know when or what is going to work out quickly and when or what there's going to be problems that take a long time to solve is what's so hard. Yeah. Because like nothing else in the world is structured that way. School is not structured that way. School is like you take a class, you take a test, it ends at this time. Work is like you have a project, you have a deadline, it ends at this time. You know when everything is going to begin and end. And then you get into this zero gravity environment in a startup where it's like you have no control over time. There are no deadlines. You set your own yeah. deadlines. And yeah. you are exposed to, especially as a early stage startup, <clears throat> the amount of external exposure you have 
to not controlling timelines is huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Hey, they just don't have this chip. Like I, I'm, I'm going to go and try to find someone else who can make this chip. But like I may, the first person I call may have it or it may take me a hundred calls. I just don't know. I'm just going to go out and do the work. And you know, it's that I think is why so many people fail as entrepreneurs is like they, (coughs) they don't want to do that. And like totally fair. I don't, I don't really fall into the camp of thinking that like great founders are better than anybody else. I just think that they are uniquely positioned from a temperament perspective to like, there's a small part of great founders that enjoy that. And as painful as it is while you're experiencing it, when you look back, you're like, I'm proud of myself for doing that. Like holding myself accountable, setting a standard, doing something that very few people would be able to do. Like great founders, I think enjoy that process. I, so I probably wouldn't say I, I enjoyed the process. I think looking back now, I'm like, I'm really proud. Exactly. As you said. And yeah, <clears throat> it's so that's also, what I mean is like, it's not enjoyable at the time. Yeah. But you're able exactly. to compound that into a positive experience. Exactly. Forward. It's also really intense living, which I enjoy. Like yeah. I feel every, every hour, every, <laughs> every day is so intense and is so full. Sometimes, in a bad way, like yeah. in the morning, somebody calls and, uh, and, and I'm not kidding, that actually happened to us. In the morning, somebody calls and said, oh, a Russian rocket hit our lab in Ukraine. I'm like, okay, <laughs> yeah, great. Like, I'm not sure. kidding. Uh, that yeah. actually happened to us. Like we lost, we lost a lab to a Russian rocket. Um, but but in, in, the, in the beginning, while Every message that came in, I was like, kind of okay, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to continue from here on out. I'm like, that's it. Um, I think you develop resiliency, or or at least some founders that that then probably are successful in the end. Some founders develop a certain resilience. They said, you know, okay, this happened. It's not the end of the world. How do we yeah. cope with the situation? Yeah. We had a second lab that got flooded in New York. It was in the basement. Flooded in New York. Yeah, we, I remember well, the call on Monday. We learned about. It. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like uh, the, the amazing thing is, like, I, I still remember my emotion, which was like, "Oh, damn, really? Another one?" But within like three, four hours, we had okay. You know what? Let's look for a different location. They have to, they have to fix the office space. They have to dry everything up. Let's look for a different location. Let's be fast. Uh, yeah. Let's have it be within, you know, a half an hour range. Let's take the pickup truck, truck of our lead engineer. Let's let's pack everything on his pickup truck, uh, truck and we get all the equipment out. Yeah. We get all the equipment out. We dried it. We are filing a, a insurance claim. <laughs> and um, emotionally, within like a couple of days, it was resolved. And I think like really, really important as a founder is to find ways and to find mechanisms and coping mechanisms to to handle these kinds of messages and to handle like the the lows and and also a second thing that I believe is really important is that you that you balance your life uh, a bit like if if everything in your life everything you do is that company and you are unlucky and honestly being unlucky is a thing. You can, you can be unlucky for quite some time to start up and you are unlucky. Uh, it's very, very difficult to, you know, keep up your self-esteem, mm-hmm. keep the confidence for your team, 
shield the team emotionally from the adders. Like it, this is yeah. this becomes this becomes such an act of discipline. So if you're able to find other ways, other mechanisms to cope with it, for me, for example, one really amazing coping mechanism is playing soccer to the point where it's now nearly excessive. Like I'm, I'm playing soccer like four or five times per week between eight and 10 PM. And yeah. I can hardly walk. Uh, my feet yeah. are usually always up on the chair. Um, and I feel, <laughs> I, I feel it's, it's like, it's yeah. like ex excessive soccer playing, but like, I love it so much. And like, no matter what happened during the day at 10 PM after a soccer game, even if we lost five to zero, whatever, I don't care. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy. Like, it's like a, Okay, next day we've solved this problem. Yeah, um, yeah. Or yeah. there's man, many ways, you know, you can be somebody who loves to eat out or whatever. But I think being able to find a rhythm where you can actually where you can actually emotionally keep up with what's happening and stay resilient is really important as a founder. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> and I think that Yeah, I mean to that point like there is a huge focus on speed in the startup mm. culture and community. And I think that um, speed matters, but yep. as a input to endurance. Yes. Um, I, like building, building a startup is actually like a super ultra marathon. And, yeah. you know, yeah, you can run a faster time. That's great. And it'll accumulate. But what matters is being able to run for a really long time and just like get through those hard periods, you know, those hill climbs. Yes. And um, continue to go. And you know, um, this is like one spectacular year of output and then like a complete emotional breakdown explosion. It's like, it's just, it's a, like, I think that the really the only thing in my opinion, in my experience as well, that kills early stage companies is the founders quit. And yeah. there are a lot of different reasons why founders quit, but one of the most painful ones to see is just like they grind themselves to a pulp. Yeah. I, I, I personally don't think it's painful to see founders quit. Cause you're like, well, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like, and they just go on and do the next thing. It's like, all right, whatever. Like, you know, that's hmm. dumb. And I'm, I'm glad you like, you shouldn't start another company, but to see founders who like genuinely put it all on the line and just grind themselves to a point where they can't come back is painful. Yeah. And I completely agree with both, you know, on the one hand, it's not, it's an ultra marathon. On the other hand, speed is extremely important in my yeah. opinion. The question with speed is you can actually, you can actually run a lot and be very quick, but it may not look like it from the outside. Mm -hmm. One way, for example, that, that, and why, why I believe speed is really important, uh, is that you may have to pivot. You test an idea, the hypothesis were all right, the assumptions were all right, something happened, you have to pivot. Then you try another idea, you tr you test product market fit, you talk to customers, another three, four months is gone. You pivot. Yeah. So e even if you're unlucky or you bet on the wrong horse, if you are fast and you have, I don't know, two years to live, two, two years of runway, and you can you can pivot once or twice or adjust and iterate on your solution that requires speed so even in this ultra marathon you need to be you need to be able to actually move very quickly between the you know yeah. between the hills to yeah. make sure you're not running in the wrong direction yeah. so as it's it sounds counterintuitive or even ex exclusive in a way but 
it's a it's an ultra marathon where you have very quick and speedy sprints from hill to hill to see okay that that was the wrong hill let's go yeah. south let's go north yeah yeah and i think i mean to continue to illustrate on that metaphor i think that a lot of times what i see uh founders struggle with and i struggle with this um you know just in my own leadership position building antler is they think about speed as just how fast am i running how much energy mm. am i putting in and the reality is so imagine you're running an ultra marathon and there's five different for whatever trail you're on you know there's there's different sections of the trail horizontally there's sand mud pavement mm. uh grass there are different surfaces and those surfaces sort of wind and weave past each other. It's not always a straight line to stay on the pavement. And so one thing that I've become really focused on helping and supporting founders with is it's often like a really great founder should, in my opinion, figure out where their high end work capacity is before starting a company. And it's like, that's yep. like your raw output that's sustainable for you. And everyone has a different raw output. It's like, that's how much energy you should put in on a weekly basis where you can run this whole thing instead of trying to run faster than you should. Yep. You know, and that's all like, instead of thinking about speed is working 80 hours instead of working 60 hours, it's thinking yes. about always trying to put yourself on the pavement. And yes. I think that's one of the things that's very under discussed in startups is the speed of what you're doing is heavily affected by focusing on yes. doing the right things. Yes. And oftentimes, the pavement or the things that you should be doing are the things that you're psychologically most averse to. Yes. Right. Yes. Because, um, so I, 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 I tell the antler team this a lot and I say to founders, cause I always wondered, you know, why is it so hard? Why do you have to constantly repeat to founders, go talk, to customers, go talk to customers, go talk to customers, go talk to customers. Stop asking me my opinion. Stop yeah. whiteboarding, go talk yeah. to customers. Yeah. And I struggled with this, you know, at this point I've worked with thousands of entrepreneurs. And it's like I've, every entrepreneur I've ever worked with had to have this conversation. And I wondered to myself, like, why does this always come up with a natural barrier if it's so clearly the most important thing to be doing? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> and I think the answer is, or at least where I've arrived is the most important things have the largest psychological barriers. The reason why founders delay going and talking to customers and they justify all these reasons why, well, we're not ready. We don't do that. You know, there's a million different justifications you can create is it forces you to objectify whether what you're doing is right or not. Right. Yes. The risk is it's like you want to find a girlfriend, go out to a bar and talk to yes. as many women as possible is the answer. Why do people not do that? Why do people come up with all sorts of other strategies around it? It's because like you're exposing yourself to rejection. When yes. you go to talk to customers, you're going to find out whether your idea is good or not. And you can't, you can't walk around it. Either customers want it or they don't. And <clears throat> so I think <clears throat> uh, developing the ability to understand those blind spots and in turn, I think you can undermine them by understanding them as like, hey, on any daily basis, it's not going to feel like going and talking to customers is the right thing to do. But that's really just a psychological barrier yes. to being rejected. 
But what I really need to do is just go make 10 customer phone calls every day on yeah. the day over and over again and find out whether or not we're doing the right thing and take that feedback. And so I think that the metaphor of staying on the pavement is there's actually a lot of effort that's needed to stay on the pavement per se. And it often means doing the thing that you like least want to do on a daily basis. There's all I the can. fun thing. Like we were make a new logo or create a new pitch deck or write all my strategy out on notion for the 17th time is like, that's all very easy. Cause there's no psychological barrier to like, you know, no one's going to tell you whether that's good or bad or this and that is like, but you're running in the sand or the mud, right? Like you're putting in the same amount of effort every week, but it's really not yielding very much results. I cannot stress that point enough. It is one, if not the most important area, the most important thing to do to build your business, talking to customers, not even only customers, just talking to people about it. Yeah. Sometimes I think another barrier is like, I don't even exactly know who my customer is. Um, I'm <laughs> yeah, like, is it, is it like the, <laughs> the rest is it, is it is the guy in the home? Is it like the 40 year old engineer? Is it maybe yeah. a restaurant? Like yeah. very often, uh, like it's, it's these very simple administrative difficulties that I, I don't know who my customer really is. I don't know exactly what my product is. So yeah. who, who do I call and what do I ask them about? Because I don't really know. Yeah. And sometimes when that happens, what I realize is then, okay, then, then do not call, you know, uh, a vice president of who you think your customer are, who you think your customer is, go to your friends, go to other people, randomly meet people at a bar, go to even VCs and tell them not, Hey, I have this amazing product. You have to invest in it. It's amazing. It will absolutely make a billion dollars tomorrow. Yeah. But like ask them, look, I think this could be worthwhile. I do want to build that. What do you think? Yeah. And sometimes, uh, frankly, like also my VC talks have changed a lot. In the beginning, it was more like pitching this product, this idea that I that I thought I have to like deliver in, in the most golden and yeah. and sparkling and unicorny way possible. <laughs> by now I would say by now I would say 50% of my my calls are like this is really helpful. I would like to pick your brain on X. What do you think on Y? And the crazy thing is every second we see is like oh amazing. My brother-in-law owns the following company that could actually really benefit from your product. Or yeah. it like, like people that are not necessarily my customer actually point me to, yeah. to, to customers. And so that, that took a lot of time. And unfortunately, like I fall in the category that you mentioned uh, of being slow to, to learning that. Um, but I can, <laughs> I cannot stress it point enough. Like if you don't even know who your customers are, if you do not know exactly what your product is, then, then just talk to random people. People that will maybe not as random as like you know going to a shopping mall and 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 just talk to granny you yeah. find there, but like talk talk to VC somebody who is in the business world, talk to a friend of a friend who who has a company or another founder, and the yeah. more you talk, people will actually point you in very um, unexpected yeah. areas or ways you didn't you didn't think of before, where you say oh actually that can make money that is actually a business model that works oh that looks like product market fit 
So yeah. yeah, I I do have I I do have to like stress that point and give like three stars and put a little golden golden <laughs> unicorn with a sparkly with a, with a sparkly uh, horn yeah. on top to just to just emphasize the point. Yeah. And like you're like and people have different inclinations as to like what their distracting activities are. Like I think yours is tinkering, you know, it's like yeah. what is, what is what does Manu naturally fall into that's not talking to customers is like tinkering with the science. Yes. It's like you yeah. know, we're upgrading the algorithm or we're adding some new component to the hardware and it's like yes. great, but like how many customers have you talked to? Because yes. did they ask you to do that or are you just tinkering? Um, and then there's like the, I think there are tinkerers, which is sort of your persona. There are strategists, right? Who are just like, I'm just going to keep thinking about the business. Like I'm going to keep yeah. writing yeah. strategy documents it's it's very I, I tend to find that um like that the nba persona falls into sort of the strategist where yeah. it's like well like until we have the perfect strategy like what's the point of going out and talking to customers it's not going to work and it's yeah. like yeah but you're missing the whole point it's like yes. the only way to actually figure out the strategy is to go and bump up against all the things that don't work in the real world which like seems painful but that's actually the only process it's all it all has to be objective uh, one 100%. Yeah. I think and now, I mean, PowerX is entering a phase now where it's, you know, it's, you know, we join the investor calls and it's like 75% of what we're talking about is customers. customers. Yeah. You know, the pipeline. It's like, look, the, the, the actual product blends into the background of like, look, the product roadmap is we're just going to keep building things to keep our customers happy. Right. Yeah. But like, you know, there's, there's a little bit of intellectual uh, vision that we're laying on top of the product in in the sense that customers are not always great at explaining exactly what they want and what we have to figure out is what are they actually asking for yeah. from an outcome perspective but we're mostly going to listen to them and most of my job is actually going out and just selling and running a pipeline yeah and, and honestly that is more fulfilling than than anything i've done before yeah. which is why is i'm real progress I'm as happy as i've ever been building power x yeah, yeah. I, the question, the question might be somebody might come out and say, okay, so how did that change? How did it happen? Frankly, there was a bit, bit of luck involved. And yeah. again, luck, luck came because we, we continued to, to work on it, you know, sooner or later luck, luck may find you. Yeah. And the luck was that one of the largest restaurant chains and one of the largest hotel chains in the world actually reached out to us they had found us by luck on the internet and said hey that's actually what we need can you build that in and we said like you're kidding me like you have restaurants in virtually every large city and every country in the world yeah. you want us to build that in you know we are a startup like you know and so, yeah we know but there's like this what you're producing is actually it doesn't really exist yeah. so but it only took three and, and a half years it only took three and yeah. a half years for you to be in a position where that actually yes. worked, right? Where they found you, yes. you actually yeah. had the product and the supply chain and everything ready yeah. to go. And, yeah. you know, you had been out figuring out that, hey, hospitality, uh, quick service restaurants, like these are categories that we yes. have a real value proposition to. Yeah. So like it was sort of this prepared mindset of like you were ready to have that conversation and be like, well, yeah. I'm exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. It, so, yeah. I, I wish that would have happened in you know, the first seven months, but... Yeah, of course, but it's just it happens. going back to our conversation about like, just run until I tell you to stop. <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. Part. 
Um, so I, I want to segue uh, quickly just to the last piece because I think a lot of this applies also to the process of fundraising, which is this very mystical, mm. very often un- misunderstood um, aspect of building a company. I think it, it it's a huge inflection point in that like when you go out and raise a seed round for your startup, um, yeah. it's two things simultaneously. Number one, it's the first time you've ever really done it. So you're just kind of thrown yeah. at the plate in the major leagues with very little preparation and training. And number mm. two is if you are able to figure out how to do it successfully, it is in the life of the company, the greatest de-risking event that will happen. Yeah. In terms of the shift of probability of you being successful before and after raising uh, yeah. seed capital, statistically, it's the biggest de-risking of that. Like it's yeah. multiple orders of magnitude more likely that you're going to be successful once you accomplish that. But, uh, you know, I work with founders every day who are raising seed. It is so mystical. It's so misunderstood. And I think a big part of that is like many of the things that are required to successfully fundraise are very counterintuitive. Yes. You, you actually have to do the opposite of what you think you should yeah. do. And yeah. so would love to just hear your story of like raising you know, the seed round and how you managed it and what you learned and developed, like what you would do differently. Absolutely. Very, very happy to. And I will also now be a bit counterintuitive and actually uh, propose a cookie cutter approach, something you should never do uh, to, <laughs> to, to raise a successful seed. And that, that cookie cutter approach is to set up a a you know google sheets or whatever it may be yeah. with six different um slides on slide one you put okay this is who we are and honestly just in one sentence not more just in one sentence who are you that can be i'm the i don't know airbnb for dogs like it, it, it can it can be many ways, but in one in one phrase, one sentence, say who you are, and do, don't like spice that to make it beautiful. Just black on white. The second page, you describe your product, and again, keep it as simple as possible. Like no graphics, n- no long writing, like no buzzwords, no buzzwords. Be yeah. as if you were writing to yourself. Do not think of the investor. Like, honestly, that's actually a recommendation. Like, when you build this, don't think of the investor. Think about how would I write this to myself? How would I want to pitch this to myself? And, and you don't want to, you know, overdo it with, oh, my God, this is, like, the best thing that ever happened to this industry. You want to be really honest to yourself. And yeah. you, you know the pros and cons. So write four, like, you know, three bullet points on what this product exactly does. Yeah. Um, then... Um, well, if you have some traction, you might want to put that in there. So on slide three, traction, for example, like, okay, we are the... Traction can be a lot. It doesn't have to be revenue. It can be some form of KPI. Hey, we actually got a, a MOU signed, or we we actually uh, developed, I don't know, like like three of these products that we think are great. Like, traction can be measured in, in a different way, but show progress. Yeah, and I would just... Just on the mm-hmm. traction slide, Mono, I think my, I think a lot of times people get caught up in what number do I need to have in this and that. And I try to coach people to think about traction as 
what are you trying to convince someone of quantitatively? Yes. And I think the best way I always describe it is you're trying to show pull, yes. right? Not push. Exactly. Right? A lot of people yeah. do a, sl a slide and they're like, here's how hard I've pushed the product yeah. out into the market. And I think really good traction slides are, I'm showing pull, you know, yeah. the largest restaurant chain in America reached out to me wanting to buy our yeah. product. The largest hotel chain in the world reached out to me wanting to buy our product. It's pull, right? It's, pull. it's not about the number 10 K MRR, this and that it's, are you finding pull? Is there, yes. and there's a lot of different ways to define that, which I think actually opens up the possibilities of like, I think founders should be much more creative about how they display traction yeah. because you're trying to make a qualitative point, which is I'm finding pull from the market, but you're yes. trying to quantify it with whatever you have. And yes. And, and the point you made previously, I think the final point there is like, just be intellectually honest, right? Yes. Like you're never going to convince an investor to back you if yeah. they don't feel like you're being honest about what you're yes. actually seeing or you're covering yes. it up or you're like, you know, we've yes. done this and blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but like, is that actually that good? Like, do you believe yeah. that's good? Cause if you do, I don't like, so yeah. I would just, highlight that traction piece is like that slide should make someone feel like we're finding pull from the market. The market yes. wants us to come in. Yes. Uh, 110% Be because pull is also pull is a sign of this, uh, mystic word product market fit or those yeah. mystic three words. Yeah. Um, it's super difficult if you have to push your product, out in the market or if you even even if it's an interesting product if you have to create a market for it that's you're up against a wall that's very difficult to climb yeah. if the market pulls and that can even be that people say i love this i want to yeah. buy it so you don't even have numbers yet but like yeah you had like five people saying oh my god i love this i, I don't want to live without it that is incredible yeah. pull and incredible indication of early product market fit and yeah. um, which goes to your point, you have to be like, like, be, be innovatively creative on what progress can mean, but don't lie to yourself. Like if, if yeah, I think you made a great point. Like, be honest with yourself. Have the intellectual honesty, I think, is one of the most yes undervalued aspects of pitching your company well. Which is like, yeah. hey, look, everything's not going perfectly, and I'm not going to lie to you about that. I'm just going to yeah. lay out where we're at yeah. and what I believe. And yeah. if you don't believe that, then you're not the right investor for us. If you do. Yeah. Like you'll be drawn in because I'm being totally honest about all of this. And investors know, like, it's not that yeah. they, it, I think what you said before, you know, this is a marathon and much of building a company is not even about having this amazing idea that just has immediate product market fit. Much of it is just execution, execution over time, keeping your team inspired, continue to work on it. So in, investors know that you may have to adjust and iterate your product that you may even have to have a slight pivot. That happens at this stage. Um, yeah. What really sets you apart is I really thought about this. I actually have some knowledge or experience in that field. It's also very difficult to say, hey, you know, I actually I studied painting and I want to build a, a rocket ship and the market really seems to be interested. That, that's also very difficult because it doesn't show founder market or final product fit yeah, exactly. but um um it's yeah the, the world really wants cold fusion i'm gonna build a cold it, fusion it, exactly <laughs> i have no idea but okay. I, I will do it <laughs> give me 20k and i will make it happen um on slide on slide five and that's actually you know frankly i think it's it's a good check for you but don't over don't don't uh over 
estimate the importance is what I call the TAM, total addressable market. And it's important for you to understand that you're actually in a market that makes sense and within which you can adjust and iterate your product. If you're addressing a, a super small market where only in the world there's only you know $20 million we made if you get the entire market, it doesn't matter whether you iterate and adjust your product and have perfect product market fit, you will only ever make 20 million. As long yeah. as this number is large enough and large enough is in the billions, ideally, you know, uh, in the in the multiple, like, like up to a hundred billion or so. If you, yeah. if your 10 is large enough, it's kind of a binary thing. Okay. You seem to be, you seem to be good. If it's that small, like you're in the wrong market and yeah. the, the slide number five would be your team. And that's actually really, really important. Do not underestimate the team. Again, if execution is more important even in the beginning than like the right yeah. idea, then the right team and a very powerful team makes it happen. So the, the team is is extremely important at, at the seed stage level. And the final slide is like, you know, your your goal, what do you want to raise? And actually, I think, it's it's worth putting some thought into this. Do you want to raise three million? Why? Like, how long will that serve you? Like, who do you want to hire with that? What is that new hire going to do for you? So, okay, you want to hire a salesperson? That's fine. How much will you pay the person? Hundred eighty k? Is it like half salary, half performance based? So, uh, have a goal in mind of how much you want to raise and why you want to raise that much. You can still adjust that goal. Like once we filled, you know, our our million target, we we added another million. But it's it's also important for you to to think about the the KPIs and the goals of the company uh, in in the next year or two, and then tie this to the amount you want to raise. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think I mean, you know, having a real financial plan. It's not just like put as much money in the bank as possible. It's like, what do you want to do and what hurdles do you want to meet? Um, there's another aspect. There's a, there's a psychological aspect, I think to being very clear as a founder about this is what the round is going to look like. And it is, um, reducing the decision workload for an investor. So if I yeah. ask you, I do the all things the same, right? And say it's a company that an investor is sort of interested in. If I say, "Great, that was it, PowerX. Do you want do you want to invest?" I just ask the same question. There is a tremendous amount of decision workload because you're forcing the investor to go through the spectrum of, well, that answer depends on many different multivariant factors. How much do you want from me? At what yeah. valuation? How yeah. much do you already have raised? Yeah. This and that. Yeah. And so you're putting a tremendous amount of friction yes. on somebody saying yes. Yeah. Versus if you say, again, same pitch, that's PowerX. We're raising a million at 10. I'm happy to go through how we plan on spending that money. Are you in or you're out? It is, the decision is, will you invest in PowerX at 1 million, $10 million exactly. valuation? Mm -hmm. Yes or no? It's a much, there is order of magnitude less yes. cognitive load on the latter than the former. And founders underestimate when you yes. talk to 200 investors, how much that reduction in load compounds yes. into people being able yes. to say like, yeah, I'm in. Because especially at this valuation of like say 10 million or so, uh, yeah. there is rather light due diligence 
Yes. It's it's more about you know the story you tell. It's more about the confidence they have in you personally, in 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 the team, in the idea overall. So being easy around, being being frictionless around um, how you can close the deal is very very important. Um, maybe to some up you know these five six slides i was just discussing i think there's a couple of what to do and what not to do um once you once as a founder once you put that down on paper keep every slide as light as possible like one bullet point fantastic one craft that shows the main thing you want to talk about fantastic we all you know i want to put okay but i should really mention that i should really mention this point Sure, you can you can always add something more, but like keep the story as simple. That sounds very stupid as possible. Yeah. Um, a second point is when when talking to investors, like pick their brains. My first slide decks actually they were like, wait, I actually did the calculations that does not work out, and I was like, oh shoot, actually that's right. Like if I am yeah. number wise, if I'm really honest, that does not work out. So. And and then don't hide it, but say like, okay, this is really fair feedback. What do I have to change in that story and that company and that strategy over the next year for it to work out? Think yeah. about it, adjust it. Yeah. Like also pick investors' brains. Maybe, maybe, you know, pitch to the ones you, which are nice to have, but not absolutely critical first and pick their brains on like punching holes in your storyline and in your slide deck and then adjust accordingly. It yeah. will not be perfect the first time. And also really helps you to think about, is that a fair business? Like, honestly, for example, we, when, when I pitched, I had a third category, hotels, restaurants, and, and solar companies we were pitching to because we had a really, a really large contract we wanted to sign with a solar company. And one of the investors said, you know, I really want to invest, but I did this calculation with how much you can charge a solar company and what's the value for the customer and so on. And here is, with the value you can add, and how much you can get per node, so per customer. Here's my calculation on how many customers you would have to get in what time spent to actually get to the numbers you put on the paper here. Yeah. And I had done this calculation well for hotels and restaurants, and I just kind of skipped over it uh, for, for, for solar. And I realized that's not, like even though we can make money, that will never be an interesting total adjustable market for us. And yeah. so this investor actually pointed me to Another fact that I can really just encourage everyone to do, which is focus. We found this trap. We did too much, you know, being in the U.S., in Germany, in China, global supply chain. Then we had three, four products, and we were basically focusing on everybody out there, which, again, also feeds into talk to your customers. Um, We were doing way too much, and if there's a way that you can focus on even a smaller customer segment that you serve really well or even a more focused product that you do really well without maneuvering yourself in a niche that where the TAM total market is too small all like in 9 out of 10 cases like take decision to focus it it might seem counterintuitive because you want to do everything for everyone as a founder at least that was like my my initial way to go about it but focus and simplicity are actually as important as it gets that's why closing this up, I also really suggest, you know, only one max two graphs, only one max three bullet points per page, a very focused and simple message 
and then refine the pitch, refine your company around what VCs and investors tell you because they actually really know. They've seen hundreds of companies fail and so they know what does not work for you yeah. or they have a, a very good understanding. They also know what really does work and if investors say, oh my God, this is amazing. You could do X. Like, yeah. listen to it and, and pursue that that further. Yeah, yeah that was a that was a long a long talk. No, but, but I, I think this is. I mean, dude, this is this is gold. I mean, uh, like I said, I I was joking in the green room, but talking about this podcast is like war journalism, which is like you know, <laughs> instead of like regaling on stories of what people did ten years ago, is like going talking to founders who like just came off the front lines and like what yeah. is it like out there? What did you do well? What did you not do well? So, Monty, the last point I just like to make. I think all that is amazing golden um one thing i tend to find is founders drastically overestimate the conversion rate of founder or of vc conversations so they massively yeah. underestimate how big the top of the funnel how many calls did you do to raise your seed that is a good question um i would say in total it's it was probably 60 70 calls yeah. um yeah, it's also, and that was in the time. But you condense those. That was like a two or three week sprint of like. Yeah, it, it was absolutely. It was absolutely nuts. I was. Yeah, I remember you like wouldn't even so answer my WhatsApps. You were like, <laughs> and I usually I'll call you in a week. I'll call you in a week. <laughs> and I usually answer your WhatsApp first. No, it's like uh, it was absolutely exhausting. Like. Um, uh, I, I'm, I was so lucky because my wife was basically, you know, in the morning, she already put kind of the meals I would have uh, at lunch yeah. and like uh, already on the on the table because I would just <laughs> not stand up to do anything. <laughs> it was like back to back to back. Um, but it also was very helpful. Then in the evenings, you have to refine your message because you realize, hey, actually, this doesn't work out. Like I have to adjust, I have to adjust my message here. Like I have to adjust the product. It doesn't work out. Like be really yeah. honest about that. If, if, a, if a VC, if an investor points towards something that doesn't work out, that's really good learning. Um, then also conversion rate wise, the reason why for us it was so many calls is because the strategy we had, we had wanted to go is many smaller checks to also have a larger reach rather than like one huge check. So maybe if you, you know, you have like five really interested investors and one comes through with like a $3 million check, that's, that's great. Um, you, you may probably have to do more due diligence and have them five, six, seven calls with that investor. Like usually yeah. a $3 million check has way more due diligence around it than like, let's say a $200,000 check where it can be honestly two calls. I like you. That makes sense on a high level. Yeah. I know another friend to invest in you. I also come in with 100000 or 200000 Yeah. I mean, that's a good point around just like, uh, like gaming the decision friction, you know, it's like 3 million via $200,000 checks versus 3 million from a $3 million check could accumulate into a lot less friction, like yeah. in aggregate. Right. So it's like, Hey, look like 200 K I'm in, let's do this. Uh, and you have like a huge cabal of people who want to help power X to see yeah. to the, the number of people you have locked into, um, force power x to succeed is grown yeah yeah and there's there's benefits to both like uh not not oh, yeah. not to take me yeah, wrong a lot here. Of stakeholders too exactly <laughs> you have a lot of stakeholders too uh so you need to really refine the way you reach out to them uh for example what what we do now is we have a monthly email 
we have a dashboard where we show like our core numbers and yeah. we have a call but the call is more for you know investors that that have put in a, a larger sum and then it's more of a you know friends and advisors meeting together rather than let me call all 12 investors everybody comes in with two people and we have like a call of 25 30 people so yeah. like you you have to be streamlined how you keep everyone updated but there, there are ways to do it yeah well mana this has been incredible um i uh i really appreciate you coming on i appreciate all the incredible insights from the front lines uh as a founder and you know as always like you know excited every day about seeing you continue to grow this business and um i couldn't be more more bullish on just the future of PowerX. so i'm really uh proud to be an investor i'm i'm very grateful that you've let me be a part of this journey and uh, i appreciate you coming on and sharing all these thoughts and uh wish you the best of luck that is so mutual my friend <laughs> all right i'll let you go cheers my yeah. friend i'll talk to you soon take care right. hey everybody it's tyler again thanks so much for listening if you're interested in building a venture-backed company like the one you just heard about, we would love to help. To learn more about our founder studios that we run around the world, please find more information at antler.co.